go ahead and start our reading. John 15 at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, this is your word. It is holy, inerrant, infallible. We look to your word for revelation, for, for your words intended to be written for your church. And Father, we ask for the eliminating power of the Holy Spirit. Show us the the meaning of this passage. Show us how to apply this passage to our life so that we can glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a foreman at a large manufacturing plant, and he had hired some summer help, three college students. And he assigned them to different tasks around the plant, mostly outdoor jobs since it was summertime. And one of the jobs that he had assigned to them was to move this giant mass of wooden pallets. Every pallet that had come into the factory had been kind of dumped in this area. Their job was to move these pallets to another part of the plant. They needed that space, so they had to go. One of the Students had been trained on the, on the forklift, so he was operating the forklift, and the other two were, were moving things around as needed by hand. And of course, the foreman had other things to do, so he left them to complete the task. He came back uh, late in the morning and to check on them, and he found them uh, sitting around, talking and, and joking amongst themselves, 25 minutes after their break was supposed to be over. And so he told them, get back to work. And they did. He came back a little later to, to check on them, a little later in the day, and they had, they had made uh, a fort out of the pallets with uh, rooms and, and walkways and windows and a little area to park the, the fork truck, uh, like a little garage. And the foreman shook his head. He had seen unreliable summer help before, but this was a whole new level. And he said, are you in second grade? You're on the clock. Let me make it clear to you. You either move these pallets today or you don't come back tomorrow. Do your job. That was the summer help. The the summer help was having trouble with what we might call staying on task. How are we at staying on task? Not at work, but spiritually. How are we at staying on task? 
do we know what our task is? As men and women created in the image of God, do we, do we have a task? And if so, what is it? In John chapter 15, Jesus uses a vine and branches illustration to teach the importance of staying on task. Our task is to glorify God. Our purpose, the reason we were created, is to glorify God. And in chapter 15, Jesus tells us how to do that. How to stay on task. So let's start at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Stop. Right there. Uh, Jesus is, is going to work this vine and branches illustration from a couple of different angles to to communicate his point but the first thing he does is clear or reset their understanding of vine and vineyard language because God has used this language before God has used a vine vineyard grapefruit illustration to teach his people things before in the old testament for example psalm 80 verses 8 and 9 you brought A vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. Also, Jeremiah 2, 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you become, or how have you turned a degenerate and become a wild vine? Likewise, Hosea 10.2, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. There are several places in the Old Testament where we see this vine vineyard language, and God's used this before. Perhaps the most memorable or or high-profile vineyard illustration is found in Isaiah chapter 5, where it says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Of course, this is a discussion of the people of God who broke covenant, who disobeyed pre-exile. And this is is Isaiah talking about how God is going to bring judgment. There's judgment language. I will remove its hedge. I will break down its wall. I will make it a waste. All these things. And then it says... Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So these were the reference points that Jesus' disciples had. When they heard vine vineyard language, they would have thought of these things. They would have thought of how it has occurred in Scripture in the past. And that's what they have been keying in on. So the first thing Jesus does is reset they're thinking on vineyard illustration. I think we've all probably seen a, a stopwatch or um, maybe even you've, you've had one of these watches that is designed for, for runners or maybe there's a function on your phone or something where there's a stopwatch. You hit start, it begins clicking off the seconds and the hundredths of the seconds. And then if you hit stop, it stops. But then you can hit start again and it will pick up right there and continue to keep time. Or sometimes there's a lap function, and you can, you can hit it, and it keeps cumulative running times and time marks. That's all fine. But then when you're all done with your workout, or when you're all done running, you can hit reset, and everything gets dropped. 
all the data is gone, and you see zero, zero minutes, zero, zero seconds, zero, zero hundreds of a second, just zeros all across, reset. That's what Jesus is doing. He's resetting their thinking on vineyard language. Everything they've come across in the past, everything they've read through all the different prophets and writings, he's just hitting zeros all the cross, all the way across. When he opens with, I am the true vine, he's zeroing everything out. He's saying, I'm not adding on to this vineyard language you're familiar with. I'm, I'm not keeping a running total. This isn't a lap time where we're going to continue and, and keep adding on to that. I'm resetting it. He's saying, I am going to use a grapevine illustration, but I am assigning new meaning to it. Okay? This was important. They needed the reset if they were going to hear him correctly because they would have heard the vineyard language and thought, oh, Israel, that's how we've heard this language in the past. Jesus is saying, no, not Israel. You, you don't have to be connected to Israel. You need to be connected to me. You don't have to be in Israel. You need to be in me. So this, that was a reset. I am the true vine. Let's keep moving. And the father is the vine dresser or gardener or cultivator. And the idea is that God is the ultimate vine dresser and he takes action so that he is glorified. He takes two different actions. That's what Jesus states. And both of these actions are talking about branches. And we're going to see that both of them initially talk about not bearing fruit, but he really is talking about true living branches and also uh, spiritually dead branches. He's talking about two different groups, believers, unbelievers, those who belong to him, those who don't belong to him. So the first action is this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we hear that in me language, and we are so used to the New Testament. When we hear the phrase in Christ, it's referring to believers. So when we hear that in me, we think, oh, believers. No. Remember, one of the, the interpretive helps that we need to bring along when we're looking at illustrations and parables and things like that is not to get too specific and try to pin down and a meaning for every single little detail. He's talking broad picture, and he's giving two actions. So this first action is describing unbelievers. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Well, what is fruit? Fruit is the visible evidence, the outward observable evidence that someone is a faithful follower of Christ. So we would probably think of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? All those uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We've all probably can run through those pretty quickly. Yes, of course, increasingly the presence of those things. But it also includes the development of our spiritual gifts. It includes serving our Savior within his church, the, the larger um, universal church, local church. It includes bearing fruit. Bearing fruit would mean growing, developing, yielding, uh, bringing forth more and more characteristics of a genuine follower in Christ. That's what fruit and bearing fruit means. So he says the first action is this. If a branch does not bear fruit, then that branch or that person is taken away, removed. So this is unbelievers. Whether they profess belief in Jesus or not, this is the person who does not walk with Christ and therefore is not recognized 
by the Father as a disciple of Christ. Or to put it another way, anyone who does not bear the fruit of following Christ is not a living branch attached to the true vine, Christ. So the first action taken by the vine dresser is to take away every unbelieving branch that does not remain in Christ and bear fruit. The section, second action is this. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So now we're talking about spiritually alive branches. They, they have borne fruit in the past. They, they must have borne some fruit, otherwise they'd be in the first category, not bearing any fruit, and they'd be taken away. So they've borne some fruit. Maybe they're not bearing the fruit that they need to be bearing. And the Father is going to take action so that, verse 2 says, they may bear more fruit. So they have some fruit somewhere, otherwise they're not in Christ. All believers have some fruit. Now it's been observed that if a actual vine is left to grow wild and it's, if it's unattended, then it will produce a significant amount of unproductive or unfruitful growth. Just a lot of woody vines and leaves that, that aren't producing anything. They're just part of the plant. And so in order to obtain the maximum fruitness, maximum yield, the plant needs pruning so that all the nutrients and water and energy go to those fruit-producing parts of the plant. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is what this illustration or this picture means. It's God, the ultimate vine dresser, pruning his people so that they bear more fruit. If left on our own, if we were to simply grow wild without God's intervention, there would be a lot of unproductive growth and unfruitful growth in our life. If, if God did not intervene and prune us from time to time as needed, we would very quickly just kind of turn into me, 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 me. And all our energy and time would go towards what we want and, and our life and creating security and comfort and, and working towards our goals. And it, it would just very, very quickly turn on ourselves. So God prunes us. Without pruning, we would be more worldly we would be more prideful. We would imagine ourselves much more self-sufficient than we really are. Without pruning, we would pray less. We would be more tolerant of our own sin. We would think of ourselves more and of God less. And we would fix our eyes on the here and now. So God prunes us and he prunes us by afflictions, troubles, suffering, difficulties, and trials. These are the types of things that God uses to prune his people so that we would be less worldly, so that we would be more humble, so that we would be more aware of our dependency upon him. He prunes us so that we would pray more so that we would abhor 
our own sin. So that we would think of God more and ourselves less and so that we would fix our eyes on eternity and the eternal reward rather than the here and now. That's why God prunes us. But pruning hurts. Pruning is not pleasant. As anyone can tell you that's been pruned or is being pruned right now, pruning is not something that we would seek out on our own. Pruning is something that God brings about sovereignly as needed so that we will bear more fruit. So the question I have, one of them this morning, is have you been or are you being pruned? Are you being pruned? God prunes us to move us and get us to a place where we would never choose to go on our own. We just wouldn't go there. We wouldn't want the suffering or the trials or the hardship, but God brings us to that place, and then when he gets us to that place, that enables us to be more fruitful than we would if we had never gone there. That's how that works. Each time God prunes us, our life becomes less and less about us and more and more about Christ. We, we think less about, less about me, 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 and more about Christ, Christ, Christ as a result of the pruning. But we need to keep this, some things in mind. Um, number one, all genuine followers, followers of Christ will be pruned. It's not a matter of if, but when. If you have not been pruned, it's coming. If you're in Christ. Number two, God is doing this because he loves you, he has plans for you, and he's going to use you. Number three, God is intensely interested in your spiritual growth, in your sanctification, in you becoming more and more Christ-like. So we have to remember, God does not just uh, save us and then kind of shoo us along and say, okay, you're saved, now go, go have your best life now. He saves us for service. He saves us for uh, fulfilling our purpose, which is to glorify him. He saves us, or excuse me, he prunes us so that we will be more fruitful, so that we will glorify him more and more. He prunes us so that we will stay on task. Without the pruning, it is too tempting to get off task and to turn inward. Verse 3, abiding in Christ. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is a statement of encouragement. He's preparing them for what is coming next in verse 4. Verse 4 is abide in me. But before that, he says, look, you're, you're clean. You're, you're spiritually where you need to be. But in order to continue your spiritual growth, in, in order to continue to stay on task, you are going to need to pay attention to what I'm saying next. And what he says next is, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So let's remember the context again. He's leaving them. His physical incarnate presence is not going to be present for much longer at all. And so he's telling them, look, if you think you can keep going, after I, if after I leave you think you can kind of go on your own, if you think you can do this by yourself and, and pull away from me and not stay connected to me and, and everything's going to be all, fi- all fine and, and okay, it's not. It's not going to be okay. It's not going to be fine. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. You need to abide 
in me. Abide means to remain in or to stay or to not be cut off. So he's saying, remain in me. Stay rooted and planted and cemented in me. Find where I'm at, stand right next to me, and then nail your shoes to the floor. You cannot leave me. Remain. Abide. Christ is where the power is. Christ is where the action is. Christ, if, if we're not in Christ, then, then we're not able to do, he says, anything. This is how we are able to bear fruit. This is how we are to stay on task and glorify him, is to remain or abide in Christ. It's kind of like, uh, we all, we're all familiar with losing power. Usually in the summertime, one of those summer storms rolls through. And if it's at night, it's even more pronounced. We're, we're at home, maybe the AC's on, and we're watching something on TV, maybe food's in the microwave, or we've got a load of laundry going, and then all of a sudden, boom, the power goes off. Instantly, everything stops. It's very unforgiving. It doesn't matter what we were watching. It comes to an end. It doesn't matter if there's water in the washing machine. It's going to stay there. Boom, it's over. It goes dark. It gets quiet. Even the refrigerator stops humming. It's very quiet. It's very dark. Everything's cut off. That's how it is if we step away from Christ. It's like pulling the power on our life. Everything gets dark and quiet very fast. And it's very unforgiving. Our life goes spiritually dark. Jesus repeats himself from a different angle in verse 5, and he takes a more direct approach. He's saying, let me, let me decode this figurative language for you. In case you're still having trouble with the vine branch illustration, let me remove any doubt. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty clear. He's telling us the outcome of not remaining in him. You can do nothing. You will not bear fruit. You will not make any spiritual progress. You will not continue in your sanctification. You will not uh, stay connected to me. You will not stay on task. You will not be glorifying God. It is impossible, it is impossible for anyone to glorify God apart from Jesus Christ. It cannot be done. That is how God is glorified, is by being in Christ and remaining in him and staying on task. Well, the application should be crystal clear at this point. What, what are we to do? We are to remain in Christ. This is what we are, we are being called to do here. Somebody might ask, well, how can I remain in Christ then? Maybe if I just... Think on Jesus. This is how I'll remain in Christ. I will just think about Jesus every day. That's how I'll remain in Christ. Or, Or you know what? I'll just tell myself I am remaining in Christ. We could probably think of a hundred different ways. We could come up with all kinds of different ways that we think we can remain in Christ. So a better question than how can I remain in Christ would be what means has God already provided for us to remain in Christ? God has appointed means, ordinary means for our spiritual benefit so that we can remain in Christ and stay on task. And those are called ordinary means of grace and they are word, sacrament, and prayer. This isn't, this isn't uh, a mystery. He has told us how 
to stay close to him, how to remain and abide in him. And it is word, sacrament, and prayer. Word, the, the word of God, scripture, sacrament, baptism, Lord's Supper, and prayer, both corporate and individual. Some throw in Lord's Day worship because you're hitting all three. You're, you're hearing the word proclaimed, you're reading the word, you're singing the word, uh, you're praying both corporately and individually, and you're coming in and taking the sacraments during corporate worship. The sacraments should never be divorced from public worship and the proclamation of the word. The means of grace have been called God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. This is how we are to remain in Christ. Our old friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Q&A 88. What are the ordinary external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of redemption? The answer, the ordinary external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of redemption are his regulations, particularly his word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effective for the salvation of his chosen ones. That, that last part is to, to remind us that these are not um, magical rites that automatically convey grace to the participant, even if they don't have faith. It, it's for believers. For example, if someone... Uh, an unbeliever prays to win the lottery. That, that prayer is not serving as an ordinary means of grace. If an unbeliever comes in and takes the Lord's Supper, that, that is not made effective because they're not in Christ. The Holy Spirit is not at work using those ordinary means of grace. It is for believers. And as believers participate in these things by faith in Christ, they are made effective. The Holy Spirit uses these ordinary means for our growth in Christ. These are the means God has appointed to keep us on task. And remember, our task is to glorify him. Have you ever wondered why some people seem to grow faster spiritually than others? So say we've got person A and person B and they both attend the same worship service. They both hear the gospel proclamation. The Holy Spirit effectually calls them. They're saved on the same day. But then you check back with them a few months later, and then a few months after that, and then maybe a year later, a year and a half, and you're, you're looking at person A and person B, and you're saying, you know what? I think, I think person A is growing a lot faster than person B. They just seem to be making spiritual advances a lot more quickly than the other person. And they were saved at the same time. Or have you ever looked at somebody and thought, you know, how do they, how do, they do that? They seem confident in their faith. They seem like they know what they're doing. They, they seem like they're connected to God. They seem like they're, they're on fire for anything that has to do with the Bible. They, they seem to be uh, grateful to God for everything. They, they seem to be exuding joy. It seems to be just oozing out of them. What, what makes them like that? Well, the answer to why someone grows faster spiritually than someone else who is saved on the same day, the reason why someone seems to be more joyful, more grounded in Christ's word, more, more spiritually alive, is because that person is remaining in Christ and making use of the ordinary means of grace 
more than the other person. So person A is reading their Bibles more. They're studying their Bibles more. They're listening to solid preaching more. They're fellowshipping with other believers more. They're praying by themselves and with others more. They're, they're unless providentially hindered, in the Lord's Day worship every week, worshiping with the rest of the church, sitting under authoritative proclamation of his word, participating in the sacraments. That's why. It's not because they're smarter. It's not because person A has more time. That's not it. It's because they're making use of the means that Christ has appointed for remaining in him. That's how they're able to stay on task. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. This is talking about those who are not in Christ. This, this is where the branches are thrown. This is where the branches from verse 2 that are taken away end up. It, it's the final state that will be experienced by all those who are not in the vine, who do not remain in Christ, who, who never were in Christ, who willfully reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also those who profess false belief. We've seen that several times in, in the Gospel of John that says they believed, but they really didn't believe. It's them, it's those as well. It's those people that profess false belief. These are dead branches. They're not bearing spiritual fruit. They do not obey the commands of Christ because they're not in Christ. So verse 6 is a warning. And, and we're confronted in Scripture with the reality that God will eternally punish all sin. He will eternally punish all those who do not turn to Christ in repentance and belief. This is one of those verses where um, if we had a preference, we, we might, as, as the church, kind of skip over. We don't always like to think about the wrath and judgment of God, but here it is, and it's a warning in the midst of this language about vine and pruning and, and staying on task. Verse 7, pray to stay on task. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This sounds very familiar. It should sound very familiar to John 14, 13 and 14, where he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. The difference is the addition of the qualifier, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So first of all, this is, this is not a promise for believers or unbelievers, anyone, that what Ever you pray for, it will always come to pass no matter what. You just simply have to say it and, and it'll happen. That is not how God works. God is not a vending machine. That's not it. Uh, secondly, the context is believers praying. This language, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's language describing believers praying. So as believers serve Christ in his church, as believers stay on task as believers make use of the ordinary means of grace as they as they grow as they as they stay on, on mission of the church to make disciples as they engage in godly ministry as they pray godly prayers christ-centered prayers that are in accordance with god's revealed will those prayers are answered god will not answer a prayer that does not glorify him God does not work against himself. 
but all prayers that glorify God, all, all prayers that will enable a believer to bear more fruit and to give God more glory, those are the prayers that he will answer. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This, this is the culmination of the entire eight verses. This is the, the, the summary verse. This is the, this is the biggie that we end on. This is where everything that's been leading in one through seven ends is on verse eight. The more we bear fruit, stay on task, the more we bear fruit and glorify God, the, the more evidence of a changed life the more we walk in obedience to, to Christ's commands, the more we glorify God. I, I hope we see this. Let's, let's make sure we bring it all together here. The more we stay on task, the more we remain in Christ, the more we bear fruit, meaning more and more characteristics of a believer are evident in our life. We're becoming more Christ-like. The more that happens, the more we glorify God. And that's our purpose. Since we can do nothing on our own, that's what he just got done finished saying, nothing, genuine followers of Christ who walk in obedience serve as living witnesses to the power of Christ in them. We're just the branches. So the the presence of spiritual fruit and, and sanctification and holiness in our lives, that doesn't point to us. That points to Christ and his power, and that's glorifying to God. Christ redeeming a sinful people, bringing these people together as the bride of Christ and to be presented to the Father as these purified people. That's what glorifies God. We're just the branches. When we see a world-class painting on display somewhere, we we don't stare at the painting and, and praise the brush we don't say, wow, what, what an incredible brush that placed all that paint on the canvas. No, of course not. We say, what a masterful artist who held the brush in his hand that was able to complete something so remarkable. We're just the brush in the master's hand. All the glory goes to God. So if you're here this morning, I, I want to draw your attention. If you're here as an unbeliever this morning, I want to draw your attention back to verse 6 for just a moment. That's the warning verse for everyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ. It could be that maybe you haven't given much thought to life's purpose. That's one of those big questions. Or, or maybe you've, you've never been taught that God is our creator and that he created us to glorify him and so I'm telling you, on the authority of Scripture, that is our purpose. It's not just the purpose of Christians. It's the purpose of all people throughout all time on the entire globe. We are created to glorify God. That's everyone's purpose. That's what verse 8 is talking about. And it's impossible to glorify God. It's impossible to fulfill your purpose in life apart from Christ. And I don't want anyone to be deceived by the world. The world would encourage people to think of life as one long extended break where we can just kind of sit around and and talk and joke with our friends. Or that uh, our life is is, uh, whatever we want to do with it. That uh, it's time to create our own fort as we see fit over a lifetime. 
But the Bible teaches us that because we are God's creation, we are actually on the clock all the time. And so if you've lived for yourself up to this point, I want to ask you to turn to Christ in faith, start fulfilling your purpose in life. And step one of of glorifying God is to turn from your sin, acknowledge you're a sinner, acknowledge that you are not morally perfect, that you have sin in your life, and then repent of it. Turn away from it, turn towards Christ. And as you do that, God promises that he will impute or credit the perfect moral righteousness of Christ to you so that you have this perfect record. Therefore, God can declare you righteous and you'll be forgiven and be in a right relationship with God. And you can go from there. He also promises to forgive your sin. The penalty, this, this, this burning wrath in verse 6, is paid for by Christ on the cross. He shed his blood, and the wrath that, that you and I deserve was placed onto Christ. He paid for it. He was an acceptable sacrifice, and the scripture says, made atonement or covered that sin. So turn to Christ. Ask for forgiveness and then commit to living for him. You will start fulfilling your purpose in life. For those of us who are in Christ, who are genuine believers, for those of us who are attached to the vine, the message is stay on task. This is what Christ is telling us in these verses. Stay on task. Now, God is not a foreman. He's not paying us. But we have been bought for a price by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 which is in the context of fleeing sexual immorality, but is generally true all the time, says you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There is our purpose again. That is our task, glorifying God in our body. With the time that he's given us, we are to glorify him. So we are to stay on task. And again, in one sense, since we both in body and soul belong to God, we're always on the clock. We don't go home at the end of the day, kick off our shoes, and then at, from that point forward, we're, we're not responsible for glorifying God. No, we're on the clock 24-7 as long as we're here. We're always living for him. So remain in the vine. Make use of God's ordinary means. And do not be surprised when God starts to prune you. He is the loving vine dresser. And the reason he is pruning you is so that you will bear more fruit, so that you are enabled to stay on task more and more, so that you are able to fulfill your purpose and glorify him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture where Christ calls us all to remain in him. And Father, we're also thankful that you have not left us in the dark to wonder or speculate on how we are to remain in you. You've given us these these means, these ordinary means of grace that enable us to stay connected to the vine. So Father, use us. Uh, Fill us with your spirit. Fix our eyes on the greater reward. Fix our eyes on eternity and not on the present, not on the here and now, not on ourselves. Enable us to remain in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.